0: Welcome to Research Recap, our research podcast on Making Sense, the hub for J.P. Morgan corporate and investment bank podcasts. In each episode, we'll bring you the latest industry analysis and research insights from our team of award-winning experts.
1: Welcome to Research Recap. I'm your host, Phoebe White, head of U.S. Inflation Strategy, and today I'm joined by Mike Faroli, our chief U.S. economist, and Jay Barry, co-head of U.S. Rate Strategy, to talk about How we're reading the recent economic data, the path ahead for inflation and Fed policy, both in the next couple of meetings and into next year, and our expectations for U.S. Treasury yields, thinking about the risks coming from supply and demand as well as the Fed path from here. Mike and Jay, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Good to be here. Thanks for having us.
1: So, Mike, let's start with you. Maybe you could walk us through just what you're seeing in the data. I know you took out your call for a recession a few months ago. So far, you know, we continue to see signs of resilience just in the last two weeks. We had upside surprises on both jobs growth and inflation. Why do you think the economy hasn't shown more signs of slowing after more than 500 basis points of policy tightening? And how are you thinking about the outlook for growth going forward?
3: Yeah. So, as you mentioned, economy is looking pretty resilient here. The quarter we just completed had the economy growing at over a 3% annual rate. We do think things will step down as we move into the fourth quarter and on into 2024. But as you mentioned, we've been surprised by the resilience of the economy here. I think a couple of factors could be at play. One is I think some of the post-pandemic tailwinds were just stronger than we had anticipated. And I think we probably also got a little more support from fiscal policy than we were anticipating. We do think both of those things are kind of time-limited, and as we get further out into next year, that we will see weakness continue to build.
1: Okay, so softer growth ahead. Let's talk about inflation because even alongside above-trend growth and tight labor markets, we have actually seen both headline and core inflation falling pretty dramatically from their peaks. For context, core PCE inflation peaked at 5.6% on a 12-month basis last year. It's fallen to 3.9% as the most recent reading. On a three-month annualized basis, it's actually running just 2.2%. Core CPI was also running 2.4% annualized in the three months through August, but we did see a re-acceleration in September. And if you look at the details of the report, it seems to suggest we could see some firmer readings through the fall. So how are you thinking about the inflation process and how do you think the Fed would respond to a string of somewhat stronger readings in core inflation?
3: Right. So as you mentioned, we have had this disinflation occur alongside resilient growth. I think some of that is the dreaded transitory story actually having some validity to it, which is to say, particularly in goods inflation, A lot of the things that really pushed up inflation were related to supply disruptions that have mostly ameliorated themselves. However, I'd also say that you're seeing something similar in wage inflation, right? And you've had, I think, average hourly earnings go from, I think, a local peak of 5.9, if I recall correctly, to 4.2 recently. And that's also occurred without any material move up in the unemployment rate. So I do think, you know, there too, you're also seeing – better supply performance on labor markets. And I do expect that to also feed through eventually to software service inflation going forward. So while we see core CPI this year on a Q4, Q4 basis at 4%, next year we have it coming down a little further to 2.7%. So not quite back to a completely comfortable place, but we do think that this disinflation has further room to run.
1: Okay, and so what does that mean for the Fed here? I guess just looking to the November meeting and then even beyond then, we have had some more dovish commentary from Fed speakers recently. But how are you thinking about the Fed from here?
3: So I think for November, as you mentioned, there have been some pretty dovish, I would say, comments, very much a wait and see attitude. We think given that, that it seems like November is very likely a meeting that they're on hold. December could get interesting if we have a repeat of some of the strength in the CPI and employment reports that you mentioned at the outset. So, that does raise risk for December. And last week's CPI probably reinforced that risk, but we still think that they will be on hold in December. And I would add that there's the risk the government could be shut down at the time of the December FOMC meeting. So, that would also be a reason for them to be a little more cautious. So, we do think. We have reached the peak in the funds rate with some risk that they could go again in December if the data comes in hot.
1: And I know a lot can happen between now and next year, but looking beyond the next couple of meetings, if your forecast is correct and we do see a soft landing next year, at what point do you think the Fed will feel comfortable beginning to ease?
3: Right. So in our forecast, we have some modest rate cuts beginning in the third quarter of next year. That's a forecast, and forecasts (laughs) often don't pan out. And I could see a scenario where the Fed is on hold at these rates for all of next year. Certainly, that wouldn't be unprecedented if you went back to the 90s. On the other hand, if things come in a little softer, I think we get some negative payroll prints. The cutting could be more aggressive than we have in our forecast.
1: Okay, thanks, Mike. Let's turn to you, Jay. So how does this translate across to the U.S. rates markets? We have 10-year yields down from their peak at the time of this recording sitting near 470, but that's still up close to 90 basis points in the last few months. Real yields are up by a similar amount. How much of this yield move do you think can be attributed to markets pricing in a higher-for-longer Fed, and what other factors are contributing to the move?
2: Sure, Phoebe. So I think at least the early onset of the move to higher rates in the late part of the summer, one could directly attribute to some of the factors that Mike was talking about a growing understanding of the greater resilience of the US economy. Mike, I think we raised our second half growth forecast by about 2.5 percentage points over the course of the summer. That would naturally translate through to higher rates, not just through the growth channel, but also because we managed to price in the Fed funds rate peaking later. I think back in the early part of the summer, we were pricing and the Fed would be on hold by now. Whereas now, markets are pricing a peak in the Fed funds rate sometime early in 2024. And finally, this is translated through to higher for longer as well, as markets are still pricing in Fed cuts in the second half of 2024, but about 40% of what was priced in the summer has been removed. So I think in aggregate, at least the first half of the move to higher yields, one could attribute to the sort of greater resilience that we've talked about and higher for longer. But more recently, since September, the drivers have changed because I think the markets fed and growth expectations have been relatively stable. But inflation, forward inflation expectations have risen modestly. And that can explain some of the move here. But in aggregate, we look at the moves over the last month or so. We cannot explain versus those fundamental drivers, which have explained anywhere between 90 to 95% of the variation in 10-year yields over the last 10 to 15 years. We can only explain about 50% of that move. The remainder is unattributed, and I think one could talk to it more about in the context of some term premium, and it means that long-term treasury yields are now more dislocated from these fundamental drivers than they've been at any point over the last year. The last time we saw a similar dislocation was in the fall of 2022, when we were going through hawkish developed market central bank policy shifts, but also the UK LDI deleveraging. And prior to that, we really need to go back to either the spring of 2020 or potentially the summer of 2013 in the taper tantrum to see the magnitude of divergences that we are seeing right now. So while in aggregate we can see fundamentals driving a lot of this move, it cannot explain all of it, and at least the last 35 to 40 basis point seems to be away from the fundamentals.
1: So I know you've written a lot about sort of the supply and demand imbalance in the treasury market and how that could be contributing to higher term premiums. So how do you think about where yields are headed from here when we have a Fed potentially on hold, but these factors that are sort of pushing term premium higher?
2: I think ordinarily, if we start with the Fed and Mike's Fed outlook, that if we feel comfortable from here that the Fed is on hold, not just at the next meeting on November 1st, but likely on hold for the duration, that should be something supportive of yields peaking. And historically, in other Fed tightening episodes, that meant once the Fed was done, there's also scope for yields to decline. And in average, over the last 30 years, we have seen intermediate treasury yields have declined 60 to 80 basis points once the Fed's on hold. Our case here has been the scope for yields. to decline is smaller than it's been in the past. One, because Mike's talked about this inflation outlook and how it's likely to be persistently above 2% at least through year-end next year which is translating to a Fed that will be on hold for the better part of the next 12 months, because on average, over the last 30 years, the Fed's been lowering rates within seven or eight months of that last hike. Second is, even though the Fed policy rate tightening cycle is likely done, the balance sheet tightening cycle is not yet complete. And the Fed is continuing to draw down its balance sheet, its treasury holdings by $60 billion per month. Mortgage holdings have been falling by about $20 billion per month. It's not just in the U.S., but it's sort of synchronized globally because the Bank of England and the European Central Bank are also sort of running through balance sheet normalization as well. So this in the background is something that should contribute to yields remaining elevated for a longer period of time. And as you said, Phoebe, it's all coming against the backdrop of a demand backdrop, which is shifting rather quickly. We've acknowledged and talked about numerous times in our research how for the last 20 years, the treasury market has been bolstered by the support of three price insensitive investors, of which the Fed is a really important one, But away from that, the U.S. commercial bank community, who have been large marginal buyers of treasuries in the past, and in particular during the recession of 2020-21, and the foreign community, we think it's unlikely that their holdings and their demand will keep pace with the growth of the treasury market on a go-forward basis. It matters because those holders are all more price-insensitive in the nature of their demand, and we're shifting the treasury market to more price-sensitive demand. And this is coming against the backdrop of deficits that are still running five plus percent of GDP, and also coming at a time where we've managed to digest treasury supply rather easily in the last six months or so, but largely because it's been at the short end of the curve in the form of treasury bills. The treasury is at the early stages of increasing long-term coupon auction sizes, and we think that this is going to mean that Treasury duration supply is going to increase by about 30% between 2023 and 2024. So when we put the pieces of the puzzle together, it all makes us think that over the medium term, long-term rates, even though the Fed's on hold, are going to remain more anchored at higher levels for longer periods of time. We think it translates into steeper yield curves over time. We also think it translates to sort of a cheapening of the belly. And you know we've talked about ways that you can mimic rising term premium exposure through those sorts of exposures as well.
1: And maybe we can just dig into some of the risks around supply and demand, since they do seem to be so important right now. Financing needs will depend on the fiscal backdrop. What are your thoughts there? And and then also maybe if you could touch on how you're thinking about the runway for the Fed's QT process. Clearly, balance sheet normalization is also translating to greater supply to private investors, as you mentioned.
2: I think on the first, on the fiscal outlook, this is something that Mike spent a lot of time on with our colleagues as well. And there's reasons to think that some of the widening in the fiscal deficit this year should not be repeated in fiscal 24, but at the same time, I think there's a growing acknowledgement that interest expense for the year is likely to contribute more aggressively to the bottom line and to the deficit than we previously had expected, so that could add some sort of widening pressure. So, on margin, if deficits are going to be hanging out relatively wide as a share of GDP, Treasury's funding needs are going to be continuing to grow. There's a healthy debate out there right now about whether the Treasury Department may choose to rely more heavily on T-bills to prevent term premium from rising more rapidly. But to me, that would sort of be out of character with its historical behavior, where the Treasury has been telegraphing to us for six months that the gap in its funding needs are such that it will need to be addressed vis-a-vis larger coupon auction sizes, and it likes to be a regular and predictable borrower. And if it were to sort of pivot back at this point with, if anything, the fiscal picture looking slightly worse than it did a few months ago, I think that would be resulting in somewhat lower credibility for the Treasury Department and out of character with its recent behavior. But on the flip side, you know, the issuance forecasts that we've talked about are predicated on a view that the Fed's balance sheet will continue to contract through next year. And certainly, you know, Mike's talked about how he doesn't expect the Fed to begin lowering rates until the third quarter of next year. Chair Powell has talked about the likelihood that the Fed can continue to normalize its balance sheet even as it normalizes rates, which makes you think that QT has a longer runway. But the risk would obviously be coming, I think, from liquidity risks. We can all go back to September of 2019 and see how repo rates spiked when reserve balances became scarce We think we're much further away from that right now, but we know that the banking system's gone through some trauma over the course of the year. And if for some reason we begin to see sort of early onset signs that reserves are less ample, that could be one reason that the Fed chooses to sort of pull back on QT and thus, you know, ameliorating some of the concerns over supply that we've been talking about.
1: Thank you, Jay. Thanks, Mike. This has been an extremely informative discussion. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to Research Recap on J.P. Morgan's Making Sense podcast channel. We hope you'll join us next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Research Recap. If you've enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll review, rate, and subscribe to J.P. Morgan's Making Sense to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read J.P. Morgan Research Reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2023, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co., all rights reserved.